Hey, thank you so much for attending. Um, as Mike introduced, I am the curriculum director at Hudson Bell Christian. Prior to that, I've had a lot of different roles as literacy consultant and coach and worked in a variety of different Christian schools in Michigan, doing some instructional coaching and curriculum work, and also done some work at Calvin University, supervising student teachers. Some of my former students are also in attendance here. So, um, so well, all right, so today we're going to jump into science of reading, and I don't know what your background is or your knowledge of science of reading. To try to talk about science of reading in one hour is quite a task. So we're going to kind of fly through here some research and try to break down some practical things that I'm hoping you can walk away and say, okay, this feels a little bit overwhelming. This is a lot of research to take in, but at the end of the day, maybe I can try a couple of things in my classroom next year, or <clears throat> now I or not next year. Next year would be great, but maybe next year will also be better. Um, but maybe I can walk away with some things, or I can start thinking um, and kind of increasing that desire to know better. So we're going to jump right in here with a little bit of background on what science of reading is. This is Louisa Motes, and she is a world-renowned literacy expert and a psychologist, and she was able to kind of sum up some of the science of reading research. And what she says here, oh, sorry to interrupt. This will be available, this presentation will be available to you on the CEA website under session handout. So it's going to be a lot of stuff. Um, and to try to write all that stuff down would be not fun. So write down what sticks, to you, what sticks with you, but this will be available to you to look back later. Um, so Louisa says, the body of work referred to as the science of reading is not an ideology, a philosophy, a political agenda, a one-size-fits-all approach, a program of instruction, nor a specific component of instruction. It is the emerging consensus from many related disciplines based on literally thousands of studies supported by hundreds of millions of research dollars conducted across the world in many languages. These studies have revealed a great deal about how we learn to read, what goes wrong when students don't learn, and what kind of instruction is most likely to work the best for the most students. And so it's not this philosophy, um, it's not a curriculum, although some curriculums would like to say, like, we're the science of reading curriculum. Um, there are elements and resources that support science of reading research, but <clears throat> it's a consensus of research. So it's been studied in multiple languages, so this is not just an English language thing. It's been studied in multiple disciplines, here is how our brain learns how to read, and here is the research that supports how we need to teach those things. Um, I also like that the last line is highlighted there, is most likely to work the best for the most students. And <clears throat> as we know, <clears throat> excuse me, students have a variety of different abilities, and so we do what we know works, but we know that sometimes there are also students who need a variety of other strategies to help them learn. So we do our best, and try to follow the research as best as we can. Some of the key research that comes out of the science of reading, which comes from some of that evidence that they were gathering over all of those different studies, are the following. The effectiveness of teaching phonics systematically, explicitly, and cumulatively. Early instruction in phonemic awareness is critical to helping students learn to read. Building vocabulary and background knowledge of text as well as a content-rich curriculum are key to supporting the development of language and reading comprehension skills. 
And then thousands of studies have established that the human brain is not hardwired to read naturally, that students need explicit phonics instruction to understand how to connect letters. So as you think about this, hopefully there's not something here that um, is completely new information to you. It should be information that sounds familiar, like, yep, these are all things that are, importantly, or are important to consider when we're teaching students. The systematically and explicitly are going to be two words that come up throughout this entire presentation. And so if you walk away remembering anything, just remember systematic and explicit, because those are really two key foundational pieces in making sure that students are being taught um, in a way that will help them remember and learn how to read effectively. Um, as you think about the five pillars of literacy, um, which if that's new information to you, the five pillars of literacy are phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. All of those are addressed within some of this key research, and we're going to break down those five pillars in a bit. Oh, that's really fuzzy for you. Okay, well, that's fun. Um, it doesn't look that way on my screen. <laughs> um, I'll just talk about it, and you can just stare at the fuzz or not if that makes you guys kind of go crazy. Um, go and Tunmer are psychologists who, in 1986, established this simple view of reading. And they've broken it down into three different categories, saying that decoding and word recognition, so our ability to read individual words, multiplied by our oral language comprehension, so our ability to understand spoken language, then results in reading comprehension, our ability to understand printed text. And comprehension can really only happen when we have some of those elements in place. So while it's nice to see this is broken down simply, um, we all would probably agree that teaching and reading is not quite that simple, um, that there is more complexity beyond that. But it's a good reminder of, hey, here are the main elements that are necessary for comprehension. So breaking it down a little bit more, again a little fuzzy, sorry, um, Scarborough, so 15 years later, Scarborough, who is a leading research researcher in early literacy and language development, said we're going to flesh that out just a little bit more. So what does this look like? So he presented the reading rope, and this may be familiar to some of you also. If you dig into any science of reading research, you're going to find the reading rope. Um, what we have here is our language comprehension piece and our word recognition piece. So really those simple views of reading are still there, right? You've got your word recognition piece, you've got your language, and then that goes into skilled reading and that comprehension. But it's broken down just a little bit better so when we look at language comprehension, right? We're incorporating vocabulary, language structures, literacy knowledge, background knowledge. When we think about word recognition in that strand, phonological awareness, decoding, sight recognition of familiar words. Within those, we know that we need to weave those strands to get that stronger, right? Within language comprehension, all of those pieces together make us strong. But as we braid that rope, those individual pieces get stronger, but then when we take two braided ropes and weave those together, we get stronger and stronger and stronger. So think about the image of a rope and unraveling and how that breaks down the strength of that rope. Now we have an opportunity to see how all of these pieces are important, and when one piece is maybe missing, then the strength of that rope is not as strong as it needs to be. So then we get increasingly strategic, we get increasingly automatic, and eventually we build ourselves up to that skilled reading. 
which is our fluent execution and coordination of language comprehension and word recognition. All right, so then the components of science of writing, which again, if we go back to any of those other things, you can see how those five pillars are interwoven in here. You can see how those pillars are represented in here and even going back how the research would support that. So we look at the five pillars, which comes out of the National Reading Panel. <coughs> I was saying, here are the key areas that our reading instruction has to have. So again, phonemic awareness, the ability of this, or the awareness of the smallest units of sound, called phonemes, and the ability to manipulate those sounds. Then phonics, a way of teaching that stresses the acquisition of letter sound correspondence and their use in reading and spelling. Fluent text reading, so reading with accuracy at an appropriate rate, with expression, vocabulary, understanding words and meanings, and then comprehension, understanding the connected text. Um, as you think about these things, again, these are probably not new information to you, right? And that's encouraging. So when we think about, okay, these are all the areas that come out of science of reading research, this is not new information for me, but what causes us to stop and reflect on what we're doing in those areas is to stop and say, is what we're doing in those areas systematic? Is it explicit? Um, do we have a scope and sequence for what we're doing? Are we doing this work intentionally to build upon those? And that's really where we can say, let's refine those pillars a little bit more and think about what we're doing within each of those different areas. So some of the key components then that come out of some of those different pillars are intentionally teaching oral language skills and knowledge, explicitly building vocabulary and background knowledge, explicitly teaching phonemic, or, yeah, phonemic skills, teaching phonics explicitly, systematically, teaching phonics according to a set sequence, closely monitoring progress and reteaching as needed, teaching blending and segmenting together, and providing decodable texts that align with the phonics sequence. Again, keywords here, explicitly, systematically, right? Those are all of the different things that we're gonna think about. So what's essential? Um, Tim Shanahan, who is a key science of reading um, guru, I guess we could say, has kind of broken it down into ways that really help us understand how we bring some of this into our classrooms. So what's essential, according to Tim Shanahan, through looking at research, is that we have to be explicitly teaching phonics and phonemic awareness for 30 minutes a day. That is essential. And so I know that none of us have a lot of extra time in the day, ever. <laughs> if anyone figures out how to do that, that would be great. Um, but it helps us rethink what's happening within our classrooms and the time that we're spending on each thing. However, he also then continues that, right? Science of reading is not just about phonics. There's definitely this misunderstanding that, oh, science of reading means phonics. That is not true. It emphasizes the importance of that foundation, but that's not the only piece of science of reading research. It's also reminding us that we have to devote comparable amounts of time to each of the other components of proficient reading, including the ability to read text fluently, comprehension, Writing, we're not going to talk much about writing today, but we know that writing falls into those elements of literacy teaching. Vocabulary, and then background knowledge. So 
Just because we do 30 minutes of phonics a day doesn't mean that we can skip any of these parts, right? Especially comprehension. We don't want a shift in focus on phonics to take away from that comprehension portion. And it looks different teaching comprehension to five-year-olds when they're not necessarily able to read complex texts. And it also looks different to fifth graders, right? And so we can't ignore those elements, but we have to make sure in great appropriate ways that we're getting all of those elements in in a more balanced way. So balanced literacy is a term that is probably familiar to all of you. And you might think, oh, this is just balanced literacy, right? Um, yes and no. So it's balanced in the fact that we know that all of the pieces are there, but I think there's been a tendency in a more balanced literacy approach to just say, well, something in that category is okay. Or over the course of the week, if I get to all of those different elements, that would be great. Or I try to just incorporate vocabulary into what I'm reading for a read aloud, and that's my element of vocabulary. So what it causes us to do when we look at the science of reading research is to pause and say, what are we doing within those pillars? Yes, we want to balance it and make sure that we are teaching all of them, but we have to make sure that what we're doing within those pillars is systematic and explicit. We need to make it very, very clear for students what is happening within each of those areas. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. You can see here the skill progression when we think about the different areas of those pillars. So it starts with the phonological awareness and word recognition, which within that pillar we're looking at basic alphabet knowledge, using letter sounds, using letter patterns. Then we get a little bit higher up, word recognition and fluency, we're looking at blends and digraphs, our controlled vowels, vowel consonant E, vowel teams. Moving up a little bit into some fluency and comprehension where we look at multisyllabic decoding and no multisyllabic decoding. And then that top piece there, vocabulary and comprehension, where students are able to read independently, having those particular skills in place. Um, we know that sometimes we can have a whole mixture of these things happening all at once, right? So it's not like, oh, we get this one perfect, and then we move to the next one. And we get that one perfect, and we move to the next one. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work out that way. So it's just important to understand how these build upon each other. If we have a student who's coming in, let's just say first, second grade, and we're like, well, they're a really great reader. They've been able to read since kindergarten. They came in really strong. It's still important for us to pause and unpack to make sure that these foundational pieces are in place. Because then what happens is they get to third grade and they can't quite get it. So we've got this like third grade, sometimes fourth grade spot where students really start struggling with reading and they haven't before. It's because they don't have these foundational pieces in place. So it sometimes can feel backwards to say, oh, well, we have to talk about phonemic awareness with second graders. Yeah, we have to make sure that students have that strong foundation because we know that it will help them build and gain that proficiency as we think about how those pillars build upon each other. All right, so we're going to jump in now to each of the five literacy pillars. What my hope is for these pillars is to go through the what. So just do a brief explanation of what exactly is this pillar um, and then how. So how would instruction look? in those pillars and then provide some resources for you to dig in deeper as you think about what those pillars of literacy can look like. So phonemic awareness, we'll start with that one. 
Um, what is it? Well, it falls under the umbrella of phonological awareness, um, which is the ability to notice the sound structure of spoken words. So it all deals with things that we're doing orally. Phonemic awareness then falling underneath that is the ability to identify, isolate, and manipulate language at the individual sound level. So paying attention to individual phonemes. One thing to note is that phonemic awareness, um, if you're trying to understand what that is and how it's different from phonics, is that phonemic awareness can be done with your eyes closed. We are not introducing print at the phonemic awareness level. It's all things that students are doing orally. It's being able to listen to sounds, manipulate sounds, and identify the sounds that they hear. Some of the skills involved in this phonemic awareness category include phoneme blending, segmentation, manipulating phonemes, so deleting, substituting phonemes, and this particular pillar is really a strong indicator of reading success. We know that it's really the best predictor of knowing if a child is going to actually learn how to read well. So it's a really, really important foundational piece um, that we have to pay attention to. So how? How in the world do we think about what to do for phonemic awareness? Um, I know you cannot read this, but part of this, I mean, if you can, that's great, but I knew <laughs> putting it on here, you would not be able to read it, but when you have the presentation, you'll be able to see it a little bit better. This is just one example. This is not like the end all, you know, scope and sequence necessarily, but part of teaching phonemic awareness is that you need a logical scope and sequence. You can't just teach whatever skills that you feel like teaching that day or the skills that you really like teaching that day. Um, there has to be a logical scope and sequence where students are building upon <coughs> different areas. So you would start with the basic phonological skills like your syllables and blending and segmenting. You move into phoneme identification where they can isolate phonemes within a word. And then moving to that, we're blending and segmenting like two, three, or four sounds instead of just a single sound. And then manipulating phonemes would be that last and final, the hardest part of phonemic awareness. Also, how do we teach this? You can do it in whole group and in small group. So in whole group, it might be five to ten minutes a day. You might start with just one skill a week and then add on other skills to that. You've got to explicitly model. So saying sounds, modeling with students how we do that with sounds. And again, following a scope and sequence so that we know that that is building upon each other. In small group, what it might look like is providing additional support related to the whole group lesson. So if you're doing phonemic awareness activities and watching the whole group, you know that not all of your students will be participating and you can't hear 23 voices saying a sound to you at the same time. So it's important then to think about how you can pull some of that into your small group instruction to make sure that you really know what specific students are doing. Um, again, we're going to explicitly model. We're going to provide independent practice time for students to work with those. And then you always want to start with the lowest deficit skill. So even if a student has some of the higher phonological awareness skills, if they're struggling with a lower skill, like just isolating one phoneme, let's say, instead of a two or three phoneme word, we really want to start with the lowest deficit skill and move up from there. Um, one important piece will be utilizing assessments so that you know what your students need. So you might be wondering, well, how do I know who needs what? There are a lot of different assessments out there, which brings me to my next slide. Um, some resources available for you. So Hagerty, some of you may be familiar with Hagerty or using Hagerty. Um, well, Hagerty is not, there's no perfect thing out there, right? 
Um, but Hegarty does a really good job of providing a logical scope and sequence for teaching phonemic awareness. Um, some of the recent pushback on Hegarty is that it's too many skills all at once for students, and that's really easy to fix. Because then, like I said with that whole group, you can go back and start with teaching one skill at a time and then building upon it, especially as students get used to phonemic awareness activities and what that looks like and how to do all the motions that go along with it. It, it can be a lot for students. And some students feel bored with it. So you've got to find ways to keep it short and quick. So sometimes focusing on one particular skill and then adding on to different skills with integrity is a good option. Um, same thing with the assessment. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but Hegarty offers free assessments on their website. You can just download them. There's a beginning, middle, and end of the year assessment. I've seen teachers utilize that in a variety of different ways. Some will just assess all of their students in all areas of phonemic awareness right at the beginning of the year to know who needs what while still doing the full Hegarty sequence, but then pulling in small groups based on students and what they need. Other teachers will say, you know what, I'm only going to teach this one area of phonemic awareness, so I'm just going to assess in this one area. So you might either pre-assess and then teach and post-assess, or you say we're going to only focus on individual letter phonemes, let's just say. Um, then you might just assess that skill after you've taught that skill and see who needs additional support in that area, and then that becomes your small group, right? Then you're just working on one specific thing. You can use your Hegarty book for interventions. Like, let's not complicate it. If it's there, just come up with some new examples for that same skill. It's all laid out nicely for you. So the assessments are key because if we don't have evidence that students know it or don't know it, it makes it a little bit difficult for us to know if they have that strong foundation. So if there's an assessment that matches well with a system, then that that can be helpful. I'm not paid by Hegarty to endorse them. I'm just saying it's like it is something that I have seen a lot of teachers using that can be really helpful as a starting point. If you're like, I have no idea how to do this, it's a pretty um, cost-effective way to start off in that area. If you don't have Hegarty or don't have an interest in purchasing Hegarty, there is still hope for you. So, um, <laughs> readingtheuniverse.org. I don't know if you're familiar with that website. There's a lot of resources out there. There is a password. It is a password-protected site. It's ABC123 is the password. Um, it includes some tasks and some skill cards that are easy to pull up in terms of some resources for how you might teach phonemic awareness to students. Another example I don't know if you're familiar with, um, Florida Center for Reading Research has tons and tons of different activities based on the five pillars for all grade levels. Uh, I think it's broken down into like kindergarten and then first and second are lumped together, third, fourth, fifth, they're, they're grouped together, but that's just fcrr.org. So you will see me uh, reference Reading Universe and FCRR quite a bit today. And again, those are places we can go for free resources that help us do these things well. All right, we're going to jump into phonics. I need a drink first. <laughs> All right, so phonics. Phonics is the system for teaching reading that focuses on the relationship between the letters and the sounds. So now we're introducing our graphemes, our print. The goal of phonics instruction is to help students learn the alphabetic principle, the idea that letters represent the sounds of spoken language and that there's an organized, logical, predictable relationship between written letters and spoken sounds. 
And it really paves the way for decoding and encoding when they're trying to actually write the different words that they are looking at. Look at this, those two words again. So the key with phonics is that it really needs to be systematic and explicit. So systematic meaning taught in an organized and logical sequence, cumulative practice built in, and then doing some progress monitoring of what students are able to do. Um, and explicit, so teachers providing precise instruction regarding those letter-sound relationships and being very specific and direct in what it is that we're teaching with those phonics skills. Instruction in this area should also provide opportunities for students to practice applying the skill. So not just learning the skill, but then practicing it. So whether that's through sorting words, um, reading, writing, using the skill, we'll get into what that looks like for reading in a second. But we really need to make sure that we're providing opportunities for students to actually practice with those things. Practice writing those words, sorting those words, and then reading literature that has those words in it specifically. Again, can't read, but this tap, this is, this, if I could put them all together, it would be like one long scope and sequence. And again, with science and reading research, there is not one set perfect phonics scope and sequence. There are quite a few of them out there and they're all very similar. Um, yes, there are some things that you need to make sure that you're teaching, like alphabetic principle really needs to come first with individual phonemes. We can't teach like multi-syllabic words before that. So there is some like great knowledge that you've got to apply to these things. But, you know, whether I teach one letter or one vowel before another is not as critical to development in specific students. So this is just one example um, of an option of a scope and sequence. You'll notice that this advanced phonics and spelling one, which would be kind of later on, is lumped into advanced phonics and spelling. So once you hit about third grade, those five pillars become four pillars. So you take that phonemic awareness in phonics and it's just called advanced phonics. Because there is an assumption that most students having been taught these things explicitly by third grade should have a pretty strong understanding of phonemic awareness. Should being the key word there. We know that that doesn't always work out. but if you're like, hey, I thought there were five pillars, and you're a fourth grade teacher, and you're like, oh, I see four. What was she telling us? Well, they're just combined and called advanced phonics because it gets to be a little bit more advanced. But if we think about a scope and sequence with beginning phonics and spelling, we've got the alphabetic principle, then short vowels, then consonant digraphs. It all just builds upon each other. The schwa, vowel R, long vowel patterns, all the way to affixes, prefixes, suffixes, root words. That would be our scope and sequence when we think about phonics instruction K through five, essentially. Okay, so how in the world do we do this? Um, we want to make sure that we're including high frequency words, um, which are matched to phonics skills. Reading Universe has a great list. Um, if you go to Reading Rockets, which is another website, they have something called Heart Words. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but those are all good options for looking at some high frequency words. We're gonna talk more about high frequency words in a little bit, but um, those are really good options for making sure that students then can apply those phonics skills through your high frequency words. So if we're already teaching high frequency words, they should match up with the phonics skills that we're teaching. And that doesn't take much time. Look at your list. Look at the scope and sequence that you have for phonics and say, which ones should I be teaching in here? Um, we're going to introduce some whole group. We're going to reinforce them in small groups. Again, following a scope and sequence. Utilize phonics assessment data. Um, there's a variety of phonics assessment data 
points out there. You may use Dibbles at your school. Coreophonics is another one that's free, that's available online. 95% group has one. Um, those are very much aligned to science of, research, science of reading research. They are not free, um, but they have produced a phonics lesson library, which can be used for whole class and for interventions, um, which follows a very logical scope and sequence. I would definitely recommend those. Um, and then decodable readers for applying sound knowledge. So decodable readers, um, You've probably heard buzz about them too. We're going to talk a little bit more about them too, but they are really the opportunity that we have for students to practice reading the sounds that they are learning. And it is extremely important for students in early language development to have decodable readers to read. True decodable readers. True decodable readers are very difficult to find. Um, you might get a decodable reader. In fact, I ordered one last year. It's like, this is so exciting. It was like, A is for alphabet. Like, B is for baseball with a picture of a baseball. I'm like, that is not a decodable reader. It is forcing students to look at the picture, um, which should not be our first, our first point of trying to figure out what students know. They have not learned the sounds in the word baseball or automobile or train or whatever word that they're using. And so those are not true decodable readers. Decodable readers are going to be readers that allow students to practice those specific sounds. And I'm going to give you some resource ideas for that in a second. Um, utilizing sound walls. Tools for Reading has a sound wall. You may have seen them. Those are the picture cards that have like your face on, not your face, but like kid lips on there. Like, you know, what your mouth should look like when you're making the sound. Um, so shifting away from a more traditional sound wall to, to a, an approach that puts some of the key sounds of the, phon the phonics instruction that we're teaching and organizes it that way. Secret Stories is another option. If you haven't heard of that, it's a way of teaching students some of the phonics skills in a way that is actually pretty um, engaging for students. They read stories and they have to try to find out like what the secret is and they learn all these different phonics skills. And it puts it in a way that students actually remember and can carry through with them. So some resources for you. Um, it's always helpful to know where to look to find things, especially if they're things that are free to you. West Virginia Phonics, if you are not familiar with those, is also all free. It's a little bit harder to find them now because they were made free for COVID and then they changed a bunch of their links. So I will give you my contact info at the end. If you are looking for West Virginia Phonics and cannot find them, I will be happy to share the link with you. I probably should have just linked it in there, so I apologize. Um, but they have very set scope and sequence for phonics, lessons that teachers can use that show exactly what the sound is, how you would do some sorts, and then decodable reading passages that go along with it. So they're passages that you would just print out. There are no pictures because it's forcing students to look at the words and make meaning of the words that are on the page. So that's a great resource. Reading Universe, we already talked about that one. Florida Center for Reading Research, another great website for phonics activities. If you're looking for books to read on making sense of some of this, Wiley Blevins, um, A Fresh Look at Phonics, is a really great one, as well as Isabel Beck's book, Making Sense of Phonics. Those are two books that would support um, or be supported by the research. And then I already mentioned 95% Group as a phonics lesson library as a resource if you're looking to actually purchase something, but that one is not free. 
Decodable readers. So I've done a lot of looking at uh, decodable readers and what good decodable readers look like. So there's the three passages that are would, would be with West Virginia Phonics, but there's also ones that you can buy that look more like a book, which we know is really helpful for students and engages them. And we want to make sure that we're not just using all printable passages. We want to make sure we still encourage that love of reading for students and help them feel successful with books in their hand. Flyleaf Publishing is probably my favorite. Um, they have a variety of different reading series. What I love about those is that they have a phonics lesson and a comprehension lesson that go with the books. So even though they're very low-level books and they're based on some phonics skills and they're decodable readers, there's still a comprehension element that gets brought in there. And that just makes us more intentional at making sure that we don't lose that comprehension piece while we're focusing on phonics. So it comes with like a binder that has the phonics lessons that go with each book and another binder with the comprehension lessons that go with each. I usually just combine them. So it's like, here's the one book, here's the phonics lesson, here's the comprehension lesson. Broken down by days, there's six copies of the book, so you can use it in a small group. And it's pretty easy to just pick up and go. Um, I mean, you want to look at it ahead of time-ish, but um, it's pretty easy to just implement. It doesn't require a lot of extra prep work on behalf of teachers. So if you have extra money to spend, that's a good one. Um, some of you might have EANS funding, things like that. That can be sort of learning loss if you are in that category with funding. <laughs> Junior learning, um, those are much more affordable if you're looking for something that is a little bit cheaper. Beware of phase one books in the junior learning decodables. Some of the phase one books are similar to those other decodables I mentioned that have like A is for, B is for. So save yourself the money and don't buy phase one because a lot of them are not true decodables. Anything after phase one in that series is great. They just added some science ones that are in there. And so it's always nice to get informational texts in students' hands that also match the phonics skills that they're working on. In all of these decodable readers, it will actually tell you the sounds that students need to know before reading the book. So when you open up like a junior learning book, it will have all the letters of the alphabet and it will highlight, here are the letter sounds that students need to know in order to be able to read this book successfully. So if you know, hey, I've taught a lot of these things, students should be able to read it with maybe minimal support, then that's helpful information to know. If you know that students don't know some of those sounds, putting that at them is probably not the most ideal. So it's helpful for matching books with readers. And then Hagerty also has published some decodable readers. Um, they are probably more on the higher end of ability, um, but as far as cost, pretty reasonable, not quite as expensive as the flyleaf texts are, but those would be good options. You just get one of each book in that kit that you would buy from Hagerty. And so I've seen teachers just use those and add them to their classroom library. So instead of thinking about them in terms of having a set of six books for a small group, just having books accessible for students that they can choose, that they feel successful in reading. So those are some other options for resources. All right, pillar number three. We're doing it on time. Oh boy. All right, fluency. <laughs> so what is fluency? The ability to read a text accurately, automatically, with expression to enable comprehension. Provides a bridge between word recognition and comprehension. It does not cause comprehension, but it supports comprehension because it means the reader is not bogged down in decoding, therefore has brain space to attend to the meaning. So it's really just bridging that decoding piece with our comprehension piece. 
there's a variety of layers of fluency, and this is probably self-explanatory, but in order to be fluent, you've got to be fluent in your phonemes, right? And then you're introducing the graphemes, which are like the actual letters, the written letters, your word parts, spelling patterns, high-frequency words, phrasing. So it all builds up. So we become fluent essentially at all of those different levels. Fluency doesn't just happen. We have to make sure that we have a knowledge of all of these different areas so that we can actually get to our goal of text fluency. How do we teach fluency? Um, we're going to provide opportunities for practice at each of those layers. We're going to work on each element of fluency, so phrasing, smoothness, pace, expression. How we do that, again, through repeated readings, through reader's theater. We're going to model fluency as we read aloud for students. Um, again, some resources, so if you're looking for a book, The Fluent Reader by Tim Rosinski is a great one for fluency. Reading Universe, again, and FCRR have lots of great resources. So again, I keep talking about those two, but um, those are helpful in thinking about what fluency actually can look like in your classroom. And those are all things, too, that you're going to pull into small group instruction, right? You're going to work on fluency, even with some of those high-frequency words that you're reading, um, pulling those parts of the word so that you can kind of get them more fluent in what they're reading. Okay, we're jumping to vocabulary. That was a really fast pillar. <laughs> there's, there's less to say about fluency than there are with some of the other ones. Okay, what? So there's different types of vocabulary. Uh, when we think about vocabulary instruction, we've got listening vocabulary. <coughs> words that we need to know, to understand, to hear. Your speaking vocabulary, so the words that we use when we speak. Reading vocabulary, words that we can read and understand. And then finally, writing vocabulary, the words that we use in our writing. So we really want to make sure we're paying attention to all of those different areas. It's not necessarily just understanding the words that we read, that there's multiple areas in which we're looking at fluency. There are also tiers of vocabulary words. Um, if you're not familiar with the tiers of vocabulary, you've got three tiers of vocabulary words. Your tier one is really just your basic, everyday, high-frequency words, words that students are going to learn just by reading. Um, because, was, if, then, saw, those basic tier one words. Tier two words are going to be your deeper levels of knowledge, but words that can be used in multiple different contexts, like the words systematic or explicit, for example. Um, they would fall in tier two. Those are not basic words that you're going to teach on a sound wall or a high-frequency word, but they're words that you could use in math, in reading, wherever. Really, our vocabulary instruction looks at tier two knowledge when we think about how we teach vocabulary well. But tier three are those words that are specific to content areas. So words that you would only use in math, like numerator. Um, I wouldn't use that word probably in any other context. Um, maybe you would if you can think of it. But um, words that are very specific to the content that you're learning. So if you're doing a science unit and you have science vocabulary words, you know, cumulonimbus clouds. That's not a word I use every day. So those are words that are going to be introduced in Tier 3, but are really important for focusing on when you're teaching a specific unit. Because we cannot assume that students know what any of those vocabulary words are, and if we're not teaching those vocabulary words within the context of that content area, then they don't have access to the content. So it's really easy for us to provide access to content when we know we're actually teaching those words explicitly. So how do I do some of this? Um, there's different levels of understanding in vocabulary also. There's just word recognition. Like, so I recognize this word, right? That's a good start. 
to, oh, I know what that word is, but then that ultimate level of understanding is, I understand the word and it can actually use the word, right? That's what we're really trying to go for in terms of thinking about vocabulary. We know that students need multiple exposures to a word and interactions around the word, um, and we need to teach it intentionally. So through read aloud, again, I know when you think about, well, how do I teach vocabulary? Well, when there's a vocab word I come across in a read aloud, I always bring it up or we always talk about it. That's a great first step, but it really needs to be planned out so that you're doing it systematically and explicitly. Um, Flowcabulary is an option. If you're not familiar with that, it's a website that you have a paid membership for, but it puts key tier two vocabulary words in rap form. Um, with anything, you're gonna have to use your discretion and look at things ahead of time, so I just have to put that disclaimer on it. So whatever you're using in your classroom, you should always be previewing first, but there are a lot of great um, vocabulary resources out there, even for subject areas, for, for not just for basic vocabulary words, but a lot of options there. Um, text talks, which we're going to get to in a minute. There are vocabulary programs out there. So 95% group has one called Vocabulary Surge, um, which would be for like a third through fifth, sixth grade level. Um, it really focuses on prefixes, root words, suffixes, and provides a systematic approach for students for actually teaching some of those more difficult vocabulary words. If we are reading aloud, besides just mentioning the word as we come across the word, there are some things that we can do to do this just a little bit better. So while we're reading, we should explain the word in the context of the story. Students will not always pick up on the word when you look at the context. That doesn't work for all words, but you should always explain the context in which the word is used. And we need to make sure that we have that connection between the words and the story. So not just pulling out the word blindly and not showing them how it was used within that story. Also, just one thing to know is that not every big word needs to be a vocabulary word. Um, if you were to stop and talk about every big word that you think students don't know, it would completely break down their comprehension and they would hate read aloud. And that is not our goal. So you have to think about how I can phrase that, you know, or how I can do things in a way that doesn't wreck the love of reading for students. And not every time we read aloud to students should we be talking about vocabulary words. There's a time and a place to just have that more like aesthetic read aloud, right? Where we're just enjoying a book. Um, I've seen teachers just kind of read it aloud. I've heard the phrase, like, let the book wash over you. So let's just let the book wash over you. Let's just enjoy the book. And then we get to maybe the next day where we say, oh, okay, we read that book yesterday. We're going to talk about that book a little bit more. We're going to look at some of the vocabulary within that book. Our goal is not to uh, force kids to do things that make reading seem not fun. So we definitely don't want to do that. But there also are ways that we can make it more meaningful in providing some of that context for students. After reading the book, we can contextualize how it was used in the story, we can provide some student-friendly definitions, and then engage students in activities with the word. So maybe they're gonna come up with examples. They can come up with examples of the word, or non-examples, or use that word in a way that doesn't just have them throwing the vocab word at the end of the sentence. <laughs> you may have tried that before. It's like, put these vocab words in a sentence. So like, they write the whole sentence and then the word just gets tacked on to the end, which you can just have a fill in the blank with any word then. So you want to make sure that they're actually using the word in a way that demonstrates that they know how to actually, or what the word actually means. Text talk is a strategy that comes from Isabel Beck and McGowan. Um, it's an actual strategy for utilizing vocabulary words. 
And this would be an explicit vocabulary lesson that you would be doing with students. So you would pick three words from the text ahead of time after you read that section. Um, typically, they would recommend like a 250 word passage or less. Um, if you do this with an entire book all at once, it can be overwhelming, unless you're just picking three words from the whole book. So you could break a book down into multiple sections if you feel like there's a lot of vocabulary words that are key to understanding the text. Again, we're not just picking out random words, but words that you feel like are key to understanding the text. Or you can say, there's really just three or four main ones that I'm going to do for the whole text. Uh, after reading, you're going to introduce one word at a time, show them where it was in the text. The students say the word out loud. The teacher explains the definition in their own words. So you would say the vocabulary word and say, you know, the word is explicit, and I know that that means, you know, done with intention or done with a purpose. Teacher explains it, oh, we already said that, uh, provide examples of the word in a different context. So you might say, if I'm going to use the word explicit, I might also say, like, I was very explicit in my teaching. You would use it in a different sentence. Um, ask students to share their own examples. So after you've modeled how that word can be used in a variety of other contexts, students are sharing theirs. Teacher asks again, so what have we been talking about? What word have we been talking about? And students say the word already. And then you would repeat that process. You would just do one word at a time. I have seen teachers take a color copy of the front cover of the book and then print off the words that they talk about in that book and then put them on the cover and then put them around your room. I know space in your rooms is not always great, but um, then students are reminded of those words. They can see them and then they have that activation of knowledge when they see that book cover and say, oh yeah, that's right, yeah, we learned about this word and now I understand that word in that context. Rather than we talked about these words today and next week I might just forget what the words even are. All right, last pillar here, comprehension. So what is comprehension? The ability to decode the words on a page and construct meaning from those words. Comprehension is really more about a student's background knowledge and vocabulary around the subject and what they are reading about. Um, so we don't necessarily ignore all of those other pieces, but we want to make sure that comprehension is really focusing on that student's background and vocabulary knowledge. And again, focusing on comprehension at all times, um, even if we're just focusing more on phonics at one point in our instruction. Some elements of comprehension. So three things really come into play when you think about comprehension. You think about the reader, the text, and then the tasks that they have to go through for reading. So not tasks that they're doing as a result of reading, but what has to happen for them to actually read and understand. So their cognitive abilities, right? Their ability to pay attention and their um, knowledge, or excuse me, not their knowledge, just their attention and their working memory. Motivation, so what's the purpose for reading? Um, what's the content that they're reading? Knowledge, so do they have that background knowledge that's key? Do they have vocabulary necessary to understand that book? And then the text, so what's the text like? What's the complexity? What, what are the levels of meaning? The length, the text structure, all those things come into play. And then the tasks, again, that they have to go through, the process of decoding and having surface level understanding, text space, representation level, where they can actually visualize what's actually happening within what it is that they're reading. Some of the outcomes of comprehension, so really, what should a child be able to do to demonstrate that they've understood a text? They should be able to articulate what the text says using specific details. They should be able to determine the main idea or theme, analyze the text, interpret word choice, author's purpose, determine the text structure, distinguish the point of view, 
form opinions, make claims, compare text, read with meaning independently. These are really what our goal is, right? This is the outcomes of comprehension that would be looking for, for us to know whether or not a student actually understood what they were reading. This chart um, helps us understand some ways, so this would be part of your how, but knowing that there's things that we can do before, during, and after reading. So we're not necessarily just like slapping on reading strategies for students, but it's all done intentionally. So before reading, we might activate knowledge, or we might have them fill out a graphic organizer. During reading, um, you'll notice concepts of print is really throughout, again, depending on the level of students. You might be teaching some of those concepts throughout the process, um, engaging the brain, text analysis, graphic organizers, self-monitoring, looking at text structure. Um, Accountable Talk is a program that forces students to use text as evidence to have conversations about what it is that they're reading. And then after reading strategy, so we're retelling, we're summarizing, we're generating and answering questions, we're responding through writing. Um, what you won't see are some of the more typical comprehension strategies like predicting and inferring and synthesizing. Um, sometimes there's like little animals that go with them. Um, those are okay-ish, but, and you'll see some of these are actually on here, right? We've got visualizing, we've got self-monitoring, but we can't just like teach reading strategies for strategy's sake, and we can't assign a certain reading strategy to a certain month, like, you know, September is visualizing and October is asking questions, as if a reader only does one thing at a time, which is not true. Um, so we really want to make sure that we're not just teaching strategies for strategy's sake, but the strategies that we're teaching provide access to the text, because we have to make sure that students are understanding what it is that they read, and we know that the text can make a huge difference. Another example of what this might look like if you're focusing on comprehension, um, really moving away from just processing or from recalling the text to more processing the text. So instead of saying, like, where was the story taking place or who are the characters or what happens in the morning every day after sunrise or who can summarize this, can you make a prediction? We can start there, but we really should be thinking about, like, what's that all about? Like, what are all those characters about? What's happening um, among those characters? What is the author trying to tell us? Or what made you think that, where they have to then quote evidence from the text? Or how does that connect to what we read before? It's activating a much deeper level of comprehension versus just like, this is literally what is happening in the book. Um, but also knowing that they have to have a basic understanding of the book in order to do some of those higher level things, right? A few other examples, um, this would be for fiction. So these would be categories that you would focus on in terms of discussions with the book. So whether you're doing a whole class activity or you're working in small groups, like in a guided reading setting, for example, we should be asking questions within these different categories. So some general understanding questions of retelling, quick checking, key details that are in the story, what the vocabulary is, what the text structure is, what the author is revealing, what's special about the way the author tells the story, the author's purpose, was there a message, why do you think the author wrote this book, inferring, um, and then forming opinions, arguments, like why do you think that, what makes you say that, what makes you think that that's the theme in this book, or what evidence do we have to support that. Same thing for nonfiction, so these will be good resources for you. Um, again, the details from the text, how the text works, why did the author write this book, what it inspires you to do. So think about what you learned in this story or this book? What can we do with this information? Or how does this book help us understand whatever it is we're learning in science or math in a greater way? Okay, we flew through the pillars. We got that. I know it's a lot of information, so I'll just pause for like five seconds. 
and say, it's probably more than five seconds, but um, while there was a lot of information and some like, hey, how do we do this? I want to make sure that you don't leave feeling overwhelmed. Like, well, those are all great things, but we don't have those resources or the structure of our ELA time is not at all like that. There are certain things that you can do to start small that don't require PD, that don't necessarily require many resources. And I wanted to make sure that I equipped you with just a few things that you could walk away with to start making strides in ELA instruction that would be supported by some of the science of reading research. So we're going to go through those here in the next five minutes. Okay, read aloud. The importance of read aloud. If you do nothing else, you're going to do these four things. You're going to read out loud to students. Again, choose a 250-word section. Talk about some of the background knowledge that you're doing. Talk about some of the vocabulary words. Again, like we talked about before, don't ruin it for students, but provide opportunities to model um, the importance of the things in the text through reading out loud. That's number one. Not necessarily like that's the most important, but it's just one of the four things. Number two, focus on high-frequency words. So start with a list of students are expected to read in your grade level. Look at a Dolch list. There's lots of high-frequency word lists out there. Um, group them into parts. So we're going to just do a little bit more with just taking the list, but we're going to look at that and say, okay, which words are maybe regular in sound? Which words are less regular in sound? Which words are words that have patterns that we haven't yet taught? And how would I fit those into my instruction that I'm doing in phonics? Um, again, organizing them, plug them into your phonics scope and sequence, and then pre-teaching some high-frequency words that you know are in the text. Um, most of the words in word lists are actually, like 60% of the words in word lists are actually regular sounds. Or if they are irregular, there's only one sound in the word that would be irregular for some of those high-frequency words. So while we think, oh, you know, there's a lot of words that don't, you know, don't fit the, the rule, um, it's actually less than we think when we really break down what's actually happening within those words. Number three, provide opportunities for practicing with decodable text. Now, again, I know I said you wouldn't have to buy anything, but um, you can find decodable reading passages. Look on West Virginia Phonics, look through your books in your classroom, in the library, and see if there are resources that you can use and really try to find ways that allows you to connect phonics instruction with what students are reading. We really want to give students an opportunity to practice what it is that they're learning about in a way that makes sense. Um, really, students should be reading decodable text until they would get to be about like a level L. So science of reading would say we should be putting students in A, B, C level type books until they're actually at a level L. They should be varieties of decodable text that match more of the phonics open sequences that they're reading. Because even in a level A or B book, you're going to have words that are difficult and students have not learned those sounds yet. So that can be something that provides some questions and debate. We're not going to go there right now, but um, I'm just telling you what some of the research says. And then number four, using effective prompting. So when we're prompting students to figure out what it is that they're reading or when they're trying to decode, put the finger under the letter, say the sound, hold it until they blend with the next sound. When helping students spell a word, have them say the word, identify the sounds that they hear in the word, so that's your segmenting of sounds. Um, you could use dots, Elkonin boxes are something. Um, you could use like those little clear chips, you know, to represent the sounds. One sample sequence that you could use if you're thinking about like a decoding bookmark or a process that you go through 
You would look through the whole word from left to right. You'd use a finger to separate the word into sounds, syllables, or chunks. You're going to ask for help if you don't know. Blend the sounds or link the letter strings. And then finally, does that word make sense? Right? So then if there is a picture, we could say, okay, this is the word that you came up with. Now let's look at the picture. Does that make sense? Or does that make sense in the sentence that I'm reading? But we're going to decode those words first. This is a link. So in the presentation, if you grab that from the CEA website, if you click on the reading link, do this, not that, that will be a link that will bring you to a bunch of documents that will look like this. There's one for all the pillars. There's also one on assessment. And it will give you some suggestions of what to do and what not to do in some of those pillars. And it's not meant to make you feel awful about what you've been doing. It's just, again, when we know better, we do better. So when we have research that shows how we should shift what we're doing within those literacy pillars to make it more systematic and explicit, these are some helpful things. So you can read through those, like, hey, here are some things that you should do in this pillar. Or here are things that you maybe should not continue to do in those pillars. And like 30 seconds early, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, my email is up here. If you have issues with finding the presentation, or getting the links in there, um, feel free to email me and I will share whatever resources I have with you. Some of the hard work of teaching is just finding all the stuff. So if I found it, I'm happy to share it with you. And 